I'm going to be a few seconds behind everybody else, but as long as you've got the recording thing, that's fine, isn't it? Why are you a few seconds behind? Because it started and then it stopped and then started again. Right. It just means my recording will be okay. it will, it'll be about 10 seconds out of sync, maybe, behind everyone else's. <laughs> so your jokes will also be 10 seconds behind everyone else. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> John's jokes are normally 10 years behind. <sighs> Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. This week's nerds are Dan Watkins, Andy Chandler, Peter Johnson, John Farben, and I'm Hazel Thurston. On today's show, it's Buff or Bluff time. It's a quiz where we've all secretly researched some nerdy facts, but we've planted a lie in there. Plus, we'll be revealing the winners of our Oscars sweepstake. So, let's get started. So what's everybody been up to? Recovering, mostly. I tried watching Audition at your recommendation, John, and now I can't sleep anymore. <laughs> you didn't watch it to the very end, though, did you? You gave up 10 minutes before the end? I could see where it was going, and then I went on Wikipedia, looked at the plot summary, and uh, was very pleased with my decision to stop watching, because mm-hmm. it just got worse and worse. Are you trying to tell us there's a happy ending, John? It, it depends how much you're a fan of acupuncture you are. Okay. I saw that. I came down the stairs and Andy was uh, in his underwear rocking backwards and forwards on the floor. <laughs> it's not, a, it's, you know, it's very difficult to get a house one day. I'm surprised you managed that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you should use that word because I was thinking about this and uh, that kind of torture porn style of entertainment. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a really, really good word. I had a strong reaction to the end of Audition. It was a pretty good film up to about the 90-minute mark. But then at the end, it just became this this horrible display. And um, I feel like I would have had the same reaction if I'd seen the same images in any other context. And therefore, it wasn't to do anything with the story or the characters or the way that the images were presented. Mm-hmm. And that's what made it to me pornography rather than cinema. Interesting. I think, I think I really like Audition and I really like the ending and, and think it's justified, but I can understand your point of view. But you were raised on torture. Cinema from a young and age. Porn. Yeah, and porn. And <laughs> porn. <laughs> I grew up in a basement, yes. Meek Takashi is famous for kind of bending genres and mashing things together and films that take really odd left turns partway through. So Why a left turn? Because it's not right, it's very wrong. As a left-handed person, we all we are always discriminated against in this fashion. Speaking of torture, Dan, were you hit with a cane on your hand when you tr- tried to write then as a child? Um, yes, because Dan is 85 years old. He's a Victorian child. <laughs> yeah, af- after the frequent spells in the chokey, mm. the daring to use the left hand and the, you know, the occasional witch trial, I was eventually able to just have mild corporal punishment for my Excellent. grievous sin of writing with my left hand. Yeah, just a uh, firing squad. Chewbacca's left-handed, just saying. <laughs> it's a poor, isn't it? Can Chewbacca write? We've never seen him write, but he was fixing parts of the Falcon in Empire Strikes Back and he was using his left hand to do so. Therefore, canonically left-handed. I'll take it. I went to get my job the other week and they, they asked me which was my non-dominant arm. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? Is like my nicer arm? The one that just rolls over and lets the other arm do what it wants. I, I was very confused for a while. Your submissive arm. Mm-hmm. 
how are we how are we coping with no Marvel to watch in this blank spot? Not good. I've been absolutely binging Ozark. I know I'm very late to the party on this, but I'm I'm very much enjoying it. I thought you would. I've gone through the first two seasons in a few days, and I'm just starting on season three. And it, it seems to get better as it goes on. It does. It, the stakes rise, certainly. It's not Breaking Bad. It doesn't have that, that complexity or sense of purpose that Breaking Bad has, but it's, as a, it's a very enjoyable watch. I'm really enjoying it. Well, we filled the weekly Marvel gap with season three of The Rookie with Nathan Fillion, which is back on UK TV. Little bit of an odd feeling on it this year, obviously centering around the LAPD. Mm. And you can see not only have they had to adapt for the pandemic, so mm-hmm. the morning briefings of the squad now take place outside and they've said that they're redecorating the officers <laughs> in the precinct mm-hmm. okay. um, to get around it. But they're trying to figure out how to deal with the fact they are a show about cops and the cops are the good guys in the show. It's interesting. It's going to take a little bit of adjustment but Brandon Routh of Superman Returns fame and psychic vegan powers in Scott Pilgrim has arrived as a cop who I have a feeling is going to be relevant in a way that he might not have been if he was in the show in previous years. So the guy looks good, but in fact is bad and they expose him and therefore yeah. you're saying some cops are bad. People have kind of excused him saying he's a good cop, he knows what he's doing, he's really experienced, he's done all these good things, but you can see that he's got these deep-seated prejudices that by and large don't affect his job, but when they do, they really affect it. In the most recent episode, a black family's house had been broken into and he just assumed that one of them was in a gang because it was LA and they were in a black neighbourhood. They're trying to figure out how to do it without suddenly turning all of their main characters into the bad guys simply by them being cops. They haven't taken any time out, like Brooklyn Nine-Nine's done, to try and figure this stuff out. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Mm -hmm. On a similar note, would anybody like a short recommendation for a short film? As long as it's short. (laughs) And it's The Mitchells versus The Machines, which is a solid 10 out of 10 classic. It literally is a short film. Um, Two Distant Strangers, which won the best short film at the Oscars. Ah, yes, I've heard of this. And is on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Two Distant Strangers is basically police racism meets Groundhog Day. Mm. Ooh, okay. Which kind of is. Yeah, a, a, um, <laughs> an African-American guy wakes up in an American city next to a girl, walks out, has a kerfuffle with a cop, a kerfuffle, that's the wrong term. Altercation. Altercation with a cop, which leads to the, him being killed by the cop. He then wakes up, and it's the same morning, and we have this over and over again with a, a variety of different scenarios playing out. So you've got the Groundhog Day conceit being used for a, kind of a quite a serious purpose, and it works really, really well. Both as a polemic and, uh, you know, as something with something to say, but also as a short film. Can't recommend it enough. It's 32 minutes. So for a, it's a long short, but it's on Netflix. Go and watch it. When does a long short become a short long? I don't know for the Academy. Is it an hour? I think that's the minimum cutoff for a feature, um, but a long short and a short mm. long. Um, a short round. I'm, I'm not sure about any of these things. I think you can have a film that is less than 30 minutes, but you have to be wearing long johns else you're filming it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a long john, short long. Yes. Yeah. And whatever film you're watching, no short shots. <laughs> no. Unless the film's less than five minutes. Yes. No budgie smugglers. A short, 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 Magic short. Magic Mike SSS. <laughs> 
Should we do a buff or a bluff? Probably. Yes, let's. Yes, let's. <laughs> so for our buff or bluff quiz, we have all got three facts, but one of those facts is a lie. So play along with us as we try and work out which one is the bluff. Who would like to go first? My buffs and bluffs this week are about the maestro, the great John Williams. Nice. Here are three hopefully lesser-known facts about John Williams and his career of 52 Oscar nominations. More than any other living person. Mm. 52. Number one. Spielberg's Hook started life as a Peter Pan stage musical with songs and music by John Williams. Several songs had been completed when the project stalled before beginning again as a non-musical film. Number two. The famous five-note theme for Close Encounters of the Third Kind was, amazingly, William's first attempt. When he played it for Spielberg, the director told him he'd got it and not to try anything else. (laughs) And number three, the song by the Max Rebo Band at Jabba's Palace in Return of the Jedi, before it was replaced in the 1997 special edition, has lyrics not by John Williams, but by his son Joseph, who also happens to be the lead singer of Toto. The famous jizz band. Indeed. <laughs> Droopy McCool on the clarinet. Perfect. John Williams' son is the lead singer of Toto. Yes. In Africa, Toto. That's not part of the bluff. That is verifiable fact. Joseph Williams, the lead singer of Toto, is the son of John Williams, the composer. Wow. I discovered that while researching the bluff <laughs> and had to find a fact that it could fit into. Put it that way. <laughs> All a bluff. Yes. Indeed. Well, shall we start at the beginning? I might need you to get you to repeat the first fact, just because John and I were doing Huck signals to each other and I wasn't paying attention. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, number one, uh, Spielberg's Huck started life as a Peter Pan stage musical with songs and music by John Williams. Several songs had been completed when the project stalled before it began again as a non-musical film. If several of these songs were completed, do you have the titles or lyrics to any of them? multiple parts of some of those songs made it into the final film. Ooh. Damn it, I can believe all of these. Yeah, they're yeah. all they're all quite convincing. I feel like I would have heard the Peter Pan musical story. Do we know of any other stage musical that John Williams has been involved in? Mm-hmm. Is he known for even writing songs in any way? As opposed to like orchestral scores? I can say that he didn't work on it alone. It was in conjunction with one of the composers from the Bond films, whose name I can't recall. Hmm. I don't know. What was the second one again? The famous five-note theme for Close Encounters was, amazingly, William's first attempt. When he played it for Spielberg, the director told him he'd got it and not to try anything else. Dan, could you favour us by imitating the five-note theme? Ba, 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 ba. Like that, but in tune. Nailed it first time. <laughs> Auto-tune me, Peter. Auto-tune yeah. me. <laughs> I wonder if that is either the opposite happened or it was a case with another film, like Jaws, like came to him and was like, I've got this great idea. Uh-huh. And it's like, yeah, you don't need to do anything else. I, th- I think I heard the opposite with Jaws, that someone wasn't convinced when he heard that to start with. It was only when the full orchestra was playing it and things that they, they bought into it. That was a fact I came across when researching this. And I think it was the person playing the instrument thought it would sound better on a tuba and not a French horn or something like that. And it wasn't until it was all put together that they realised how right it was. 
Dan mentioned that he had to scrabble around for a fact for the third one. Does that mean he actually had to make up a fact for the third one? <laughs> I had to find a fact that included the Toto fact. Whether that fact is a fact or that fact is not a fact, the fact remains that I got the Toto fact <laughs> in amongst the fact. I think that you've used the word fact there so many times to try and trick us into believing that one. <laughs> Trying to pull some Darren Brown stuff there. I yeah. therefore think that number three is a non-fact. It's, it's also a chance to talk about the Max Rebo band and who wouldn't want to talk about those guys? They're the best. <laughs> they are good. Um, if my dad's band wasn't going to be playing our wedding, Hazel, I think the Max Rebo band would be a good choice. Veto. <laughs> no. Fair enough. Are you going to get up and play something, Andy? Um, I was kind of planning on doing that, but I have been out of practice for a long time and um, I'm probably going to be too drunk by the time it comes around. So uh, I don't know. We'll see. So this means your dad has to stay sober during uh, the wedding. He's only a drummer. He's only a drummer. It's not really a musician. <laughs> <laughs> I, he, and he, he does, does listen, listen to the podcast. To this, so, so I'm uh... sorry, that is a joke. Yeah, <laughs> <are> only kidding. <laughs> I feel I've heard the Peter Pan one, so I'm going to go with that as the bluff, although it's, it's very convincing. That film did have a checkered history as well. Yeah. But that Close Encounters thing is so iconic and perfect that I like the idea of it just being the first thing he came up with. I thought it's really simple, though. Well, as improvisers, the uh, mm-hmm. the first thing that come out of our heads all the time is just mint. So. Yes. <laughs> uh, perfect um, every time. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for Peter Pan. I'm going for Close Encounters. I'm going Peter Pan. I'm going for Max Rebo Band. Hazel is correct. The Close Encounters one was a a bluff. Uh, he wrote around 300 variations of those five <laughs> notes. And they had to try and figure out which one was the best. I believe they also contacted a mathematician to figure out how many possible combinations of five notes mm-hmm. there could be. And it was something like 134,000. Um, so they stopped at 300 mm-hmm. and went from there. Uh, Hook did start life as a stage musical. It was never put on, but three songs from it made it into Hook the film. We Don't Want to Grow Up is performed by kids in a school play at the beginning of the film. Pick Em Up is the song when the Lost Boys train Peter up. And When You're Alone is what Peter's daughter sings when she's Captain Hook's prisoner. And yeah, uh, Lapty Neck, or Work It Out, uh, had English lyrics written by Joseph Williams from Toto, John's son. And they were then interpreted into Hutties by a lady called Anne Arbogast, who also sung on the track. At least until 1997, when they got rid of it and put a vastly inferior song Mm -hmm. in its place. For no reason whatsoever. <laughs> because computers. <laughs> and you were uh, listening to a lot of John Williams for Star Wars Day. Is that right, Dan? I was indeed, yeah. The Vienna Orchestra that he conducted a couple of years ago have put a few videos up of that concert. So I went on a bit of a John Williams binge, which inspired this Buffalo Bluff because he's great. You are not wrong. All right, who's next? Has anyone heard of Edward George Bulwer Lytton? No. 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 He is the writer of the original It Was a Dark and Stormy Night, hmm. which is sort of famous as one of the worst possible things to start a novel with as the biggest cliche now. So, every year they announce the Bulwer Lytton Prize for the worst opening sentence someone submits for a novel. Mm-hmm. What I have are three entries for this, uh, two are real prize winners for this competition, mm-hmm. and one I made up. Which one is which? Hmm. Excellent. So the first one is from Molly Ringle. 
For the first month of Ricardo and Felicity's affair, they greeted one another at every stolen rendezvous with a kiss. A lengthy, ravenous kiss. Ricardo lapping and sucking at Felicity's mouth as if she were a giant cage-mounted water bottle and he were the world's <laughs> thirstiest gerbil. I've, I've kissed blokes like that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's like a washing machine. We're all going to be watching the wedding kiss now, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> Oh. oh, mental vision. That was Hannibal Lecter, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Okay, number two, Joseph Walsh. Dave and Sheila eyed each other warily across the hotel breakfast table like two cowboys at noon. A full hour shagging each other senseless that morning had made them more than fashionably late, and they were both now ravenously hungry. Any sudden move towards the single portion of scrambled eggs remaining would dash all hope of securing the single bacon sandwich upon the rocks of disappointment. <laughs> I'm going in, Dave thought, not for the first time. No. Oh. oh, dear. <laughs> Dave. Well, Dave. Peter. Peter. And number three. Number three. <laughs> Ali Kawashima. As the dark and mysterious stranger approached, Angela bit her lip anxiously, hoping with every nerve, cell and fibre of her being that this would be the one man who would understand, who would take her away from all this, and who wouldn't just squeeze her boob and make a loud honking noise as all the others had. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I changed my mind. (laughs) When did you write this, Peter? Because I think if you wrote this morning, you might have had breakfast on your mind. (laughs) Yeah. Or boobs on your mind. <laughs> Always. <laughs> you get to that age, oh. though, don't you? And I am there where on a morning, if you're in a hotel and you've got the option of an, an hour of shagging or a bacon roll. <laughs> <laughs> if the bacon would win, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> or combine the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not mutually exclusive. Everything's improved by bacon. Very true. Yeah, that first one. Mm-hmm. The gerbil. The gerbil sounds like an author who thinks, yes, this is an image that nobody has come up with before. I've got it. And it hasn't quite turned out as well as they'd hoped. So I can believe that one's Mm. real. The third Mm. one's a little too silly and the sort of thing I can imagine Peter amusing himself by writing. I don't know. Which makes me think that it's not that because I think it's too obviously (laughs) Peter. Have you read Fifty Shades of Grey? I haven't, no. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. much. Did he go honk at any point in that? <laughs> it would have been a much better book if it, or a much better film if he just squeezed her boobs and went honk and yeah. they run off laughing. I mean, it, 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 it's, as, it, it's as silly as that, if not mm. as clownish. Mm. Um, mm. Ooh. So as far as I'm aware, these are not genuine first lines of novels. These are people writing what's supposed to be a terrible first oh, line I see. of a novel. Oh, okay. but, the, but these are the prize winners. Uh, other than the one I made up. Oh. Ah. Breakfast buffet. Yeah, that one made me want a bacon roll, so I am condemning it to the world of bluffs. Okay. I'm torn between two and three. I'm going to go bacon. Yes. Okay. I'm going to go for number three, uh, the honking one, because uh, it's the only one that didn't include the word ravenous. And I think Peter noticed that in the other two and thought, nah, I'm going to come up with my own words. <laughs> okay. In actual fact, the bluff was number two, the bacon <laughs> sandwich. Are you yeah. going to submit it for next year? <laughs> to the well, maybe I should if no one can tell the difference. <laughs> Although I have actually started writing a kid's story 
I started writing Please that this week. Don't don't put that in your kid's story. <laughs> don't. That is not the opening line. No. Somewhere in the middle, is it? <laughs> or honking boobs. Don't put that in your kid's story either. Sage advice. You're welcome. And strangely, one that doesn't appear in the um, script writing books I've read. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that has saved a lot of trauma over the years. <laughs> what do you get as a prize for winning this competition? Uh, glory, I believe. Glory. I don't, I don't okay. think it'd be anything serious. Mm. You get to co-write a book with John Grisham. Something I was going to do as a bluff, but I haven't. I've done something else in relation to that. Is um, Has anyone seen the 1994 film The Santa Claus? Yes. yes. With Tim Allen. There's a line in that where Tim Allen says, oh, you mean 1-800-SPANK-ME. And that turned out to be a real phone number to a real adult services hotline. But the worst thing is they only discovered that when the film was released and a child (laughs) rang up. Oh, no. number. (laughs) Wow. The the film was altered and uh, uh, all the different (laughs) versions have been updated. But yes. It was very hard making that film, apparently, because there was a lot of artificial snow and they couldn't stop Tim Allen from trying to snore and or sell it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, he's next. Mine is about movie disclaimers uh, that came about as the result of political assassinations. That old chestnut. (laughs) (laughs) Number one. Dr. Strangelove begins with the disclaimer, It is the stated position of the US Air Force that their safeguards would prevent the occurrence of such events as are depicted in this film. This disclaimer is an indirect result of the assassination of JFK. Mm. Number two, the common disclaimer, This is a work of fiction. Any similarity to actual persons living or dead is purely coincidental. Uh, Is an indirect consequence of the assassination of Grigory Rasputin. And number three, National Treasure 2, Book of Secrets, has in its credits an additional disclaimer stating, this motion picture is a work for entertainment purposes only and should not be viewed as informative or historically accurate. Which is indirectly... (laughs) Well, uh, this is indirectly because of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Which I assume has something to do with the plot of National Treasure 2, which I'm not sure I've seen. If I have, I've blocked it out. That's the one where Nick Cage does the variety of British accents, isn't it? Yeah. I've seen that clip. We watched it last week, oddly enough. We watched both of them, one after the other. And you criticise me for re-watching the Star Wars prequels. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never seen National Treasure 2, but the gap between National Treasure and National Treasure 2 is when Nick Cage became Nick Cage, as in the parody of himself, <laughs> and all, you know, lost his critical faculties. So it's a much more entertaining film. <laughs> Is Abraham Lincoln in it? Yes, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, I think, plays into the plot of one of them. I can't remember if it's the first or the second. One of them I 100% know is true. I'm guessing the second one. Knowing your fascination with Mr. Rasputin. Yeah, and I know that's true because it was an early biopic of one of the Russian princesses and it's insinuated she was having an affair with Rasputin. Mm. And she sued, I think, MGM. MGM is correct. Yeah, and as a result, that disclaimer was put on and is on lots of films since. Just to play my unfair advantage card, I don't think Andy's seen National Treasure 2, so he would have had to research this. Are you saying he doesn't normally? No, no, no. I I meant that he didn't know that off the top of his head. He had to... um either make it up or he came across that in his research of political assassinations. Mm. 
I think he might have guessed that John would have seen it, given that it featured Nicolas Cage, so wouldn't have tried to bluff John on something from a Nick Cage film. So I'm ruling that out for that reason. Mm-hmm. Could be wrong. So we're left with Dr. Strangelove, yeah. which did come out pretty soon after JFK's assassination. So why is it an indirect link? Because there's nothing about assassination in the film, is there? No. There was something they cut out. The original ending uh, was going to be a huge pie fight in the mm-hmm. war room. And um, Kubrick decided against this, A, because uh, he thought it actually turned out to be farce and didn't really fit the satirical tone of the film. But also there was a line in it about our young president being struck down in his prime during the pie fight and uh, that snip snip out it went right so it was it was released in uh, 64 and jfk was mm. assassinated 63. november 63 22nd of november 63 um the first test screening of dr strangelove was originally scheduled for that day uh, but it was subsequently delayed mm. as was doctor who but not the birth of our fellow nerd ian mclaughlin yeah he came out bang on time yeah <laughs> there's never been on time since (laughs) Mm. yeah Yeah. okay so everything that Andy has just said about Dr Strangelove is correct okay (laughs) (laughs) thing about the pie fight and the young president stuck down in his prime is all completely 100% correct yeah well perhaps he came across this while he was doing his Nick Cage research Mm. could well be would you like more information about the uh, National Treasure 2 disclaimer yes yes please It's specifically due to the film depicting John Wilkes Booth as the assassin of Abraham Lincoln, which you'd think would be an uncontroversial position. Uh, But there is and always has been a small contingent of conspiracy theorists who believe that Booth couldn't have been responsible and was merely a scapegoat. Um, An adherent of this belief was Ryan Bryanson, an executive producer of the film, who initially pushed for the exoneration of Booth to be included as part of the story, but eventually settled for the additional disclaimer at the end. Hang on, let's have that name again. Ryan Bryanson is a very lazy name to come up with. (laughs) Yeah. That's the bluff. That's the bluff. Yeah. Yeah. That's the bluff. He's actually Brian Ryanson. Do you think I'm not capable of coming up with a more believable name than that? You just couldn't stop, could you? You had us and you could just couldn't stop. <laughs> okay. I think I know which one I'm going to go for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The third one. It's the third yeah. one. Yeah. Same here. Uh, yeah, you're right. It looks different. <laughs> <laughs> it's like all that research. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. Well, I was trying to come up with the most American name possible, and uh, I settled on Dirk Studebaker, but I thought that was too fake sounding. Mm. I thought, ah, oh, this is difficult. I'll just do something stupid, and they'll think it's too stupid for me to have made up something so stupid when I'm trying to trick them, you know? You want somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know that for next time. The, the pie fight scene um, and, and also just the mood of America at that time, height of the Cold War, president just assassinated, incredibly sensitive time. Columbia films uh, were, the, were the ones that chose to add that disclaimer at the start as a way to kind of reassure viewers and also to potentially mitigate any backlash they got mm-hmm. from the armed forces. Um, and yeah, uh, Rasputin, indirectly responsible for that very common disclaimer, this is a work of fiction and so on. And it's because um, he was murdered in 1916 by Prince Felix Yusupov who was then exiled by the Tsar along with his wife, Irina. In 1932, MGM produced Rasputin and the Empress, featuring characters very clearly based on the Yusupovs. Uh, They sued, claiming the film was defamatory, not to Felix, because he had published a memoir specifically bragging about how he murdered Rasputin, but it was uh, defamatory to Irina because the character that represented her was hypnotised and raped by Rasputin, who couldn't sue because he was dead. 
But MGM lost the court case partly due to a lack of deniability. They prefaced the film with a statement saying, this concerns the destruction of an empire. A few of the characters are still alive. And the judge told them that they would have had a better chance if they stated the exact opposite. And thus, this is a work of fiction disclaimer came about and was put everywhere by everyone, just assuming that it was a silver bullet and would protect them from lawsuits. Um, oddly enough, that same disclaimer appears in places where it probably shouldn't. So in Raging Bull, uh, which is based on the life of Jake LaMotta, um, he is credited as a consultant, but then it still has that disclaimer at the end saying that everyone in there is fictitious and any resemblance to Jake LaMotta is purely coincidental, despite the fact that Jake LaMotta <laughs> was part of the film. <laughs> cool. yeah, excellent. excellent. Um, shall I go next? I have naughty films made by stars that were re-released once they became famous. Oh, no. Define naughty. (laughs) I'm not going to say porn films, because one of them just contained a bit of nudity and so on, but was not an erotic film. (laughs) So the first one is the film Party at Stud and Kitties, which was released in the 1970s and starred a very, very young Sylvester Stallone who was paid $200 for two days' work on the softcore porn film. Following the release of Rocky, the film was re-released as The Italian Stallion, with pictures of Stallone, and was sent to cinemas for $10,000 a night. Upon hearing this, Stallone said, $10,000, for that they cannot show the film, and I'll just turn up myself. (laughs) Robin Williams appeared briefly in the 1970s sex comedy, Can I Do It Till I Need Glasses? playing a lawyer and a man with toothache. His role was so small, it was actually edited out of the film. However, following the release of Mork and Mindy, the film was re-released with those clips reinstated and advertised as Robin Williams was the star. Maybe it wasn't small, maybe it was just a very cold day. (laughs) Robin Williams um, sued for, I think, $150,000. Finally, DJ Jazzy Jeff starred in a early 90s softcore porn film DJed in the background whilst sex scenes were going on around him. A few years later, this film was re-released as The Fresh Princesses of Bel-Air, with him credited as DJ Jizzy Jeff, and using the tagline... Oh, <laughs> using the tagline, here's a story all about your wife got turned upside down. <laughs> oh, dear. Right, so how, how long have we got to draw out this discussion before we all say it's the third one? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I know for a fact one of them is true. I have heard of the other one. Wait, which one of those have you seen, Peter? <laughs> for definite, the Italian stallion the, is. Yeah, that's the totally one I know true. for sure. Yeah, heard him say that line. I have heard of the title of "Can I Do It Till I Need Glasses," but I don't know anything about it. It sounds more like a British sex comedy. Mm. It was like a, a sketch comedy thing, but we've interspersed with breasts and the like. <laughs> I said the word <sighs> breasts because Louise finds it amusing when I say breasts in a Yorkshire accent. <laughs> and, um, she says it's singularly the most unerotic thing she's ever heard. So, <laughs> and she normally listens to walking around Sainsbury's. So I like to say breasts. Yeah. Oh, breasts of chicken. Give her yeah. a little quiver in the meat aisle. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Uh, <laughs> so it's the third one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> it's yeah. got to be. Yep, yeah, definitely. DJ Jizzy, Jizzy Jeff. DJ mm. Jizzy Jeff. Yeah. It's still bullshit, though, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yes. Very, yeah, well, very, well, very yes, bullshitty. Yes, it is bullshit. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Other working titles were The Fish Pussy of Bel-Air and The Fish Prince of Belend. 
<laughs> there is a, there's only a couple of celebrities that have gone on to one famous. There was obviously Justin Diamond famously started screeched, saved by the smell. Although he did in later years say that he used a stunt double and it wasn't actually him in the sex scenes. And, the late um, Dustin Diamond before you. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I have a buff or bluff of a slightly different tone. Uh, <laughs> that would be difficult. Is it more or less naughty than uh, DJ? <laughs> um, no, it, it's, um, it's quite serious. So this is the most dangerous film sets in movie history. Okay, mm-hmm. so I've got... The stories of three movie sets where a lot of really, really, really bad things happened. I made one of these up, but the other two stories are very true. So first we have The Conqueror from 1956. This is a movie with John Wayne where he was epically miscast as Genghis Khan. It was shot on location in Utah, which is 137 miles downwind of a nuclear test site in Nevada, where I've actually visited Tragically, over time, a huge percentage of the film's cast and crew started showing signs of cancer, thought to be due to the proximity of radiation. The director, Dick Powell, died of cancer seven years later. John Wayne and his co-stars Susan Hayward and Agnes Moorhead died of cancer in the 70s. And even visitors to the set were struck ill with tumours. People magazine asserted that of the 220 members of the film's cast and crew, 91 of them developed cancer and 46 of those died as a result. But no legal case has ever been filed. I told you it was a change in tone. God, yeah. (laughs) Number two is a film called You Can't Take It With You, which is a 1938 film by Frank Capra. It stars Gene Arthur, Mary Forbes and Jimmy Stewart. It's about a man from a family of rich snobs who becomes engaged to a woman from a good-natured but very eccentric family. There's a scene that takes place in the basement where the family have stored illegal fireworks. When they went off, which were they supposed to do in the scene, they underestimated the distance the actors would need to stand at. So both Mary Forbes and the cinematographer Joseph Walker suffered horrendous burns when the explosion got too close. And Mary Forbes got it worse because the explosion reacted to the makeup that she was wearing. That's not all. Uh, The film also shows the characters moving house. And at one point, an extra playing a worker from the moving company dropped a piano on his leg, breaking it in three places. And finally, during one scene where James Stewart's stunt double was on the roof of the house, he was struck by lightning, causing him to suffer from cardiac arrest. Uh, He did survive, but was left with deep physical wounds. Number three is a film called Raw from 1981. It stars Tippi Hedren. Having survived death by pecking during Alfred Hitchcock's (laughs) The Birds, uh, she must have thought her days of being menaced by animals were over. Not so much. So this movie, Raw, it sees Tippi Hedren and her three children, one of them played by her real-life daughter, Melanie Griffith. They return to see her husband, only to discover that wild animals have gone very, very, very wild. Shooting was pretty carnage and several animal attacks were real and captured on the film. Tibby Hedron was bitten on the neck by a lion and later required 38 stitches. The take was actually kept in the film. Melanie Griffiths was also attacked. She had 50 stitches on her face. And Jan Devont was shooting the movie um, and he was mauled by a lion and had to have his scalp reattached. The assistant director also had his throat bitten open and almost had an ear ripped off. So, 
<laughs> now, I heard quite a lot about Raw. Um, there, I've read articles about it, and there's a really good episode of the Do Go On podcast uh, all about the making of it. And I believe it was marketed as the most dangerous film ever made. And all of those injuries rang a bell. Absolute madness what went on there. But they did at least look after the animals afterwards. They were well fed. Mm-hmm. Just not the people. <laughs> <laughs> the first one, I can't believe that Hazel would make up such a horrible thing, which leads me to believe that the second one must be the bluff. Although it sounds very plausible for a 1930s studio film to have life-threatening injuries as a matter of course, because it seemed to happen a lot. Mm. Like uh, Margaret Hamilton in The Wizard of Oz Mm. and her reactions to makeup and things like that. All plausible, but I'm certain that Roar is all factually accurate. In that case, I'm going to have to do some reading about it. That's absolute insanity. After the first time someone got mauled by a lion, you'd think they would have changed the way they were doing stuff. What are the odds of two people getting mauled? But No, just carry on. I know one is completely correct. I think I'm going to pick the second one, probably. The fireworks. Before you tell us which one it is. <laughs> I'm leaning towards that one as well, because it seems kind of, um, although very unpleasant for those concerned, it seems a, a level of horror below uh, the multiple cancers of, of the Conqueror. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I reckon I'd go with, with two. Although, is, is Utah a good substitute for Mongolia? About as good a substitute as John Wayne for Genghis Khan. Very good point. Well made. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you know um, that nobody got injured on the set of Hellraiser 5? <sighs> just <laughs> that interest there. It's, it's surprising. I thought we were uh... going to get away with a Hellraiser free episode. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> Why I bother? John, I'm going to cause you an injury if you imagine <laughs> it again. We don't know why you bother either, if that's any consolation. So I think The Conqueror is probably more famous for everybody dying as a result of it being filmed near a nuclear test site than it is as a film. Raw, I am only vaguely aware of, but unless you've slipped down a tenner <laughs> or the option of a bacon roll and sausage <laughs> hotel room... Um, <laughs> I think you're overestimating how much I care about Buffalo Bluff. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to go for number two just via the process of elimination. Okay, so I think we're all going for number two. Yep, yep. And I would just like to make it clear for legal purposes that I made the entirety of number two up. So it was everything went completely according to plan with the fireworks. The stunt double was not hit by lightning or the piano. Uh, mm. Made all of those up. James Stewart did a couple of murders though, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yes, but he was very good in Paddington. The dead can't sue. The dead can't sue. I can say anything I like about you. <laughs> it's my new lawyer song. <laughs> Does that go down well in court? <laughs> Not really. Moving on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought you might know this one, to be fair, but well, it's a very, very tragic story. The the Conqueror. Uh, I didn't quite realise how many people were taken ill and, and, and sadly died after, uh, as a result of that. But if you do go to uh, Nevada and you do go to the um, the nuclear testing site, there's a great museum there, <laughs> on a lighter note. Um, and yes, it's very true about Raw from 1981. Uh, several line attacks on the actors. You'd thought they'd learned after the first one, but no, uh, everyone seemed to um, get bitten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The mm. most dangerous movie sets in film history, but apart from one of them, which I made up. 
dramatic fanfare as we walk down the red carpet into Union Station in Los Angeles. Glenn Close is twerking nearby. Well, yes, when I'm when I'm talking, you've got to imagine me walking as well down the corridor. Ooh. Okay. Okay. I'm hoping this section is going to finish with an awkward anticlimax, followed just by the credits. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Let's Perhaps do that. could just not turn up. <laughs> All right. So the Oscars have happened. The ceremony was pretty weird. Uh, and perhaps your favourites didn't triumph, but not to worry. We've got the results of our famous Oscars sweepstake. Just to remind you of the rules, which given this is our like sixth year, they should be understood by now. But nevertheless, <laughs> we all picked a film that was up for best picture out of a hat. With you so far. Well, I picked all the films and I used two hats, but same thing. That film then accumulated points throughout the night. So for all the awards that they were nominated for, they could pick up points. And there were different points for each award. So the less important ones, <laughs> like sound design and costume. No offense. Best supporting uh, actress. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, two points uh, I got you. Uh, cinematography and uh, like supporting actor and actress, they got you three points. Screenplay, acting awards, got you four points. And the best picture winner gets five points. The point of doing this is just to kind of suggest that even if your film doesn't win best picture, there's a chance it could win the sweepstake by picking up lots of other points from the other awards. I don't think it's ever happened before, but you never know. Today could be the day. So a quick reminder of the films that we all chose. Ian Mayer had The Father. Keris had Mank. Dan had The Trial of the Chicago 7. For me, I had Promising Young Woman. Andy had Minari. Peter had Nomadland. Ian McLaughlin had Sound of Metal. And John had Judas and the Black Messiah. So I can officially reveal the winners of the 2021 Nerdfest Oscars sweepstake. Coming in at eighth place with an honourable score of zero, we have Dan with Trial of the Chicago 7 winning no awards on the night. Aaron Sorkin, you let me down as much as season five of The West Wing. (laughs) He wasn't, he didn't write that. (laughs) Yes, I know. (laughs) I thought it might get a couple of awards, but no, it yeah. uh, came a cropper at every turn. It was an honour just to be nominated. Mm, I thought it would get best screenplay. And I, th- I thought Sasha Baron Cohen was a long shot or a, a dark horse for best supporting actor. And I thought that was a very strange opinion and it was pleased to see that he didn't win. <laughs> so Dan is followed by Andy in seventh place, whose supporting actress win for Minery gave him three points. That was speech of the night as well. The I forget yeah. the lady's name, unfortunately. So did Brad Pitt. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was quite a nice moment actually, because Brad Pitt produced the film, and so she made this joke of like, "Oh my god, first time I get to meet you," uh, kind of <laughs> <laughs> uh, selling him out that he never visited the film set, <laughs> which is quite nice. <laughs> and he also seemed not to practice the names of the nominees he was going to read out. Maria Bakalova. Yeah, I, I, really I'm a big Brad Pitt fan. He's like, he's clearly just stoned all the time and enjoying his life. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, this is fair enough. <laughs> so I'm next with promising young woman, and Emerald Fennell's best original screenplay got me four points. Very happy with that. I have now seen the film twice, and I think it is outstanding. I really, really, really like that film. Did you see it differently watching it the second time? 
Um, when you knew where it was going. Yeah, I, I picked up some more details from it. It's it's hard to talk about. I don't want to um, spoil it for anybody who's not seen it. Um, I have a lot to say about it, but it involves um, spoiling quite a lot of it, including the ending, so I won't. What I will say is that it, it really, really spoke to me. Um, very, very truthful film, I thought. And it just had a, had a lot to say um, about female experience, uh, male experience, um, all, all sorts of things. And I, I wish I could say more, but uh, I, I was so pleased to get that in the sweepstake and delighted that it won the Screenplay Award. It was thoroughly deserved, outstanding film. It's really, really smart, but not in one of those kind of Christopher Nolan, very complicated ways. It's just subtly got so much beyond the surface. Yeah. It's really, <laughs> really clever. One of the things I did want to say, the, the film's getting quite a lot of criticism for being anti-feminist. And I would like to say that the, those views are a crock of shite, <laughs> in, my, <laughs> in my humble opinion. Yep. I can't even understand how they'd come up with that opinion. Yeah, the, the, there is reasons which I won't go into because of spoiler reasons. But um, what I loved is that it kind of felt like it was set in the 90s. And the, that kind of rom-com tone was very deliberate, like, all of the songs were songs that I grew up listening to as we were getting ready to go out. Like It's Raining Men, Toxic, uh, not Paris Hilton, but <laughs> uh, that kind of like Every choice from colour of fingernails to yeah. set decoration to costumes, everything's been very, very deliberately very, chosen mm. to add to the, the overall message yeah. of the film. And I've seen some of those um, anti-feminist critics and... It seems like one of the, the viewpoints is because it's focusing on a specific woman and it's not something that benefits all women everywhere, it cannot be considered feminist, which to me seems wrong, but I am a man and will defer. That's totally right. And there is um, a strong moment in the film that does represent an awful lot of women, which I won't go into as well. Sorry, I'm being very cryptic. I would love to talk about like this mm -hmm. in like a spoiler way. Um, but yes, yeah. uh, love, love, love that film. It's a fascinating film. It's really interesting. and Lots to debate about. Everybody go watch it. And then when everybody who listens to the podcast tweets us, <laughs> yeah. tell them they watched it, we'll have a big spoilery chat about it. Let's do that. Let's do that. Yeah. All right. Next, we have a three-way tie. We have a threesome for third place. Ooh. And that is Ooh. Keris with Mank. That picked up two awards during the evening that um, came to five points. John, you're involved in this threesome as well uh, with Judas, <laughs> <laughs> Judas and the Black Messiah. Though that's not the threesome. Because um, Daniel Kaluuya won Best Supporting Actor and also picked up, is it Best Song? It was, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So that gave you five points as well. And Ian McLaughlin with The Sound of Metal. Again, two awards during the night, picking mm. up five points. Which I gather he really likes that film as well. So he likes the one he got given. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. It won uh, Best Sound and Best Film Editing, I think. And uh, I'm not an expert on either of those things, but the sound especially stood out as being yeah. uh, very, very, very well done. And obviously the sound is absolutely crucial to the meaning of the film. Very true. John, you're a little hesitant about watching it because you're um, desiring escapism at the moment. It was, it's quite an uplifting film mm. and it really took me away to... A different place like I really became absorbed totally in it so if you're looking to kind of switch yeah. your brain to something else and, and forget mm -hmm. the day I would still watch Sound of Metal because it's... I also have tinnitus though so maybe it's probably not the best ah. mm. very very mild luckily but you know either that I live next door to a church it's one of the two I haven't figured it out yet <laughs> <laughs> the bells the bells <laughs> 
And then there was Mank as well, which uh, we haven't said anything about, but that's probably appropriate. It was fine. That was nominated for the most uh, number of awards. I think it went in with 10. It got two in the end, uh, giving Keris five points. But um, I don't think anyone expected it to uh, win the bigger awards. I didn't enjoy it as a film, I must say. It was one of these things that takes you three or four goes to watch and... I didn't enjoy any of the three or four times I had to try to watch it. It felt really self-satisfied to me. Everyone spoke in a, a weird, um, quippy way. Uh, and and a lot of the time, maybe I just imagined it, but they just seemed to be smirking as um, how wonderful this era is and how wonderful this 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 life is. And it's Hollywood making films about Hollywood, this is ex- exactly what I worry they're going to be about. And it was it was very up itself. In 80 years' time, they're going to make a film about the writing of the film about the writing of Citizen Kane, I hope. (laughs) I may have stolen that joke from somewhere. Just go and watch Citizen Kane again. Yes. Yes, the second best film of all time. Yay, Paddington 2. (laughs) Hugh Bonneville's great in that film. (laughs) I I really enjoyed Daniel Kaluuya's uh, acceptance speech for winning for Jews and Black Messiah, (laughs) thanking his parents for having sex. It was just fantastic. (laughs) <laughs> and his mum was like they cut to his mum as well and she's just uh, hands uh, covering her face <laughs> brilliant yeah. all right moving on the winner of our second place in the nerdfest oscar sweepstake is ian mayer because his best adapted screenplay and some might say a surprising win for best actor for the father and that gave him eight points mm. I mean, John did say he is brilliant in the role. Yeah. Andy Hopkins. As I, I carry out this with having not seen My Rainey's Black Bottom. You should. But um, it's a thoroughly deserved Oscar for Anthony Hopkins. He's really, really good. As somebody who's become a little bit of a parody of himself and can kind of turn up for the cash, I think, is it fair to say, in some films. I have seen Transformers the last <laughs> night on multiple occasions. I will not comment. You actually got to meet <laughs> Sir Anthony, didn't you? I did, yes, during the filming of said Transformers film had a nice couple of chats with him about history and art and things like that. And I was there at the end of the filming day and he went round and thanked everybody who worked at the location for having them, basically, Mm -hmm. which is something an Oscar-winning legend of his stature does not have to do at all. But yeah, lovely man. Very happy that he got another Oscar. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's, there's no reason that he needed to stay up until four in the morning and travel to London from Wales, uh, being in his mid eighties. They wouldn't let Olivia Colman accept on his behalf either, which was the other option yeah. that they gave them, and they were just like, no, it's got to be him. We stayed up all night to watch the ceremony. It was very odd. Joaquin Phoenix just like I don't think he knew what to do. No, he's just like, um, and the uh, Academy accepts this award on his behalf. Good night. <laughs> It was very odd. The intention was clearly an expectation that Chadwick Boseman would win. But if you're going to pick somebody on the off chance that that's not going to happen, you know, I think the charismatic, quick thinking on his feet, notably charming and not at all awkward and shambling, Joaquin Phoenix was the ideal (laughs) pick for that job. Yeah. So (laughs) does does this mean that genuinely absolutely nobody within Mm -hmm. the structure of the Oscars TV production knows who's going to win. Mm. Surely someone at some level must know who won and would therefore maybe say to the director, possibly don't put that last. I understand there's two accountants at PricewaterhouseCoopers yes. who count the votes and they're the only two people that know. So the director of the show oh, right. has no idea. Nobody has. Because of it leaking out. They have somebody who knows in case the Warren Beatty thing happens where someone reads out the wrong name. 
<laughs> and they can go out and correct them. But other than that, nobody nobody has a clue. Right. Why risk it in that case? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steven Soderbergh has, has uh, explicitly said that the reason they put uh, Best Actor on as the, the final award was uh, in anticipation of a, a Chadwick Boseman win. That was absolutely yeah. it. So they were, they were banking on that. Is it just actors who vote for actors or how does that work? Everybody votes. The long list is created by the people in the category. And from that, they are given the... That's how the list of five names is created. And then once you've got that final shortlist, everybody in the Academy then votes on the shortlist. If they did rearrange the order, there's a risk that you can then read in who has probably won as Mm -hmm. soon as you know the running order. Mm. That's probably why the result of Hopkins winning was so surprising. Because they changed up the order, it surely made most people assume that Chadwick was the winner. But yeah, the fa- I, I, I'm not sure if I'm going to watch The Father because the plotline around dementia probably hits a bit too close to home for me. I'm not sure if I can watch it, but it's not coming out until I think the end of June. So I have mm. time to decide. I'd only watched the first two thirds last time and I've since watched the ending. And when his walls all break down and it like the pretense falls and you realise he's actually playing Hannibal Lecter, who'd been in disguise as an Asian Englishman <laughs> for the last 20 years, but couldn't keep it up <laughs> any longer, um, uh, was, uh, was a twist uh, I didn't expect. Spoilers, John. Spoilers. <laughs> oh, they should have done that in the two popes. Right. Enough waffle. It is time to announce the winner of the 2021 Nerdfest Oscars sweepstake. And if you haven't worked it out by now, it won with three awards, taking it to a confident 13 points. And that is Peter with Nomadland. I'm really sorry that uh, Peter can't be here to accept the award. Um, (laughs) uh, That's the end of the show. Oh, that should be the actual end of the show. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet, actually. Um, a few people have. How did you find it? It's very definitely a very good film. <laughs> okay. It's objectively very well made, very well performed, and very good at everything. But I don't know how much I liked it. <laughs> I can recognise the standard that it is and the quality that it is, but it didn't connect with me. Mm-hmm. Particularly. So Oscary rather than fun. I don't even know if it was particularly Oscary actually. The half documentary, half drama style of it, there's not a huge number of what you'd think of as Oscary moments in there. There's no huge grandstanding acting scene from Francis McDormand where you think, well, there's the Oscar. It's incredibly confidently directed by Chloe Zhao. The scenery's beautiful, the lighting's amazing. It's obvious why she would have won. I would equate it more to the film you see that you know has swept the board at all the festivals. Mm-hmm. If I'd gone to the cinema to see it, I might have been more disappointed than if I'd gone to a film festival and it happened to be on and you caught it and think, oh, I've seen a really good buzzy kind of film. It's very good. I just didn't have that connection with it that a lot of people clearly did. I'd probably put it above Mank, but not above anything else. What would your pick have been for someone who's seen most of them? It probably would have been Minari. That was the one that I enjoyed the most. That's the one that connected with me the most. I don't think it had a chance, but it would have been that or Sound of Metal. Mm-hmm. I'd recommend watching Nomadland because it is the best picture winner and you can at least say you've seen it. And if it connects with you, I imagine it really does, but it didn't quite do it for me on a personal mm-hmm. level. Chloe Zhao has the gig of directing The Eternals for Marvel. 
She does. How do we think she'll do? Hasn't she already, she already shot shoot it, that yeah. before Nomadland? I think it was due to be released before Nomadland as well. It was supposed to come out yeah. last autumn. Because of the pandemic? Yeah, it's hard to know with Eternals whether it's going to be a big CG fest. Presumably at some point, like the last half an hour, it is going to be. But how her aesthetic and the Marvel aesthetic match up is going to be intriguing. And the, what, one and a half seconds of footage we've seen so far mm-hmm. don't really give <laughs> much away on that. I have no doubt that the scenery and the location work's going to look stunning on a cinema screen. Beyond that, I couldn't say. And when's that coming out? Finally. November. November? I think November, yeah. The wait has, you could say, been eternal. <laughs> I mean, you could say that, but you'd be a twat. and we should also say uh chloe Zhao's uh, best director win uh pretty momentous given that was the it's she's the only the second woman to ever win the award in what 90 years something like that despicable um but i i i liked her speech a lot people are inherently good i also liked what Frances mcdormand said about getting back to the cinema Go as soon as you feel comfortable and um, get swept up in the movies again. Yes. So it really is a wonderful feeling. And that brings us to the end of today's episode of Nerdfest. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, do follow us on social media if you don't already. We're at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. And if you're feeling in a particularly pleasant and generous mood, we would love for you to leave a positive review wherever you listen to us. And don't worry, John is also in a very pleasant and very generous mood and he has a reward for anyone who does that. What is it today, John? Yes, I will come round to your house with a selection of all the Oscar movies. I will let you all watch them, pick your favourites, and then you can pretend you've won it. And I will listen to you give a speech and then pass you a little gold statuette. It would be like your own little mini Aww. Oscar ceremony. That's lovely. That's too nice. What's the couch? <laughs> <laughs> the best picture nominees of all hell is the sequels. <laughs> yeah. <there we> go. <laughs> all right. Until next time, you've been listening to a man who can't wait for the Max Rebo band to tour with Toto. A man who's here as an indirect consequence of the assassination of Julius Caesar. A man who will do anything for a bacon sandwich. Oh, that was going to be mine. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Right, me new. Oh, damn you, Peter. (laughs) The man whose woman is newfound podcast fame will lead to the re-release of his early 1996 tape, The Yorkshire Pony. (laughs) (laughs) And a woman who's already bought five bags of fruit gums for her first trip back to the cinema. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Go to bed, Andy. What time What yes. time do you have to get up? <laughs> uh, I'm going to get up about six, I think. Oh, that's not too bad. Two hours of sleep. That's all you need. Two hours of Cat standing on my head. I'm going to stop the recording yes. now because it's been going for 93 minutes. Yeah. I will have a bacon sandwich ready for you when you wake up. <laughs>